Well, kids, we have a few kids here this morning, and so if I could get your attention real quick, I, I'm just curious, how, how many kids, raise your hand if you consider yourself a kid, all right, you can be elementary school and down, all right, you act like a kid, you can raise your hand too, all right, how many of you kids, when you have the family gatherings at Christmas or some other time, if you do it at a different time of year, Thanksgiving, uh, you have the grandparents and the aunts and uncles and all the cousins there together, if you have a big family like that. How many of you still have to eat at the kids' table? Anybody? The little table? Oh, I'm sorry, Georgia. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, exactly. Everyone else, if you're, don't, if you're not still there, how many of you have had that experience as a younger person eating at the kids' table? How many of you are in your 20s and still eating at the kids' table? All right. <laughs> yeah. that, that's pretty much just a universal experience of growing up, isn't it? The, the little table, the kids' table, the... When the Baldridge family is together, it's Brooks' family, uh, for, for Christmas, there's usually around 20 to 25, maybe more people at every meal, depending on who's there. And so it, inevitably, the adults and the older teens, they sit at the dining table, the big table, and the select group of teenagers that, that make it to that level. Then in the, in the sunroom of her parents' house, there is uh, there's this round table. It's like the game table. We always play games, work puzzles on and that's like the next level down where the kind of the younger teenagers sit in there. And then in a, a totally different room in the house, uh, this little flimsy card table with folding chairs, that's the kids' table. That's the little table. That's where the sippy cups are when they were younger and all that kind of stuff. And, um, and, and so, but it's, it's like a rite of passage in the family to, to kind of uh, level up in terms of tables. So you, it's just like a big deal to be able to move up to, to the next table in line. But when you're at the little table, when you're at the kids' table in a scenario like that, they're, they're, you, you kind of expect some goofing around. You expect some messes to be made and are going to have to be cleaned up, you know, spilled drinks and food on the floor, that kind of stuff. They're young ones with bibs and sippy cups that are disgusting and they're banging them on the table and they're, you know, throwing food at each other, that kind of stuff. That's all kind of perfectly normal with little kids. But, but just imagine in the middle of all of that, in, in that scene, you have 45-year-old Uncle Steve who is, who is there and wearing a bib and drinking from a sippy cup and banging it on the table and throwing food on the ground. You, you, would, you would think something's quite wrong with this picture, I hope. I hope that's not you, Uncle Steve. I'm looking at Steve Pizzini. That's not why I picked you out or anything. Um, why, why is that not supposed to be? Well, because behavior that's acceptable at one age, maybe it's even kind of cute and a little bit humorous, and maybe not the time, but later we laugh about it, things, those things that happen. But that all changes when you reach a certain age. It's not acceptable anymore. And so at some point, you're expected to have, to have the desire, for sure, and to have the maturity to sit at the big table. Well, you can, I think, probably see where I'm going after we've read this passage just a moment ago, uh, because the same thing is true for followers of Christ. For us as, as followers of Jesus, we expect, we expect new believers to have a certain level of immaturity. And we can joyfully deal with that and, 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 and the challenges that may come with that kind of period of life. But at some point, it's time to move up to the big table. And, and when people don't, or in this case, when a church won't, they're as out of place as Uncle Steve with the bib and a sippy cup at the little table. And so as Paul writes to these Corinthian believers, notice he addresses them as infants, as, as literally just like babies in Christ. 
The church is about four plus years old at this time, but their immaturity resembles adults acting like infants at the little table. That's how he's addressing them. So, again, if you're joining us and if you've been with us, just a reminder, this is not like, again, starting a new section. This is a continuous stream of thought in these first four chapters of this letter, and in a sense, the whole letter. But he's continuing to deal with this problem of divisions in the church at Corinth. In particular, there were, there were these factions and schisms that were, that were emerging within the church, and each group was trying to justify itself uh, by identifying with certain leaders. And so you had some, I'm of Paul, I'm of Paulus, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. And as so you had these groups, and the idea is, my guy's the smartest and the best. And because he's my guy, that makes me smarter and better than you. This, is, this was kind of the attitude. And so each group's proudly standing above others and looking down on them. And it's just ripping this church apart. It's tearing it apart. And so like a good pastor, Paul has been, in, the, in, these, in these first few chapters here, he's been working to root out not just the division, you stand over there, you stand over there, and don't talk to each other, don't look at each other like we do as parents a lot of times when, when there's fighting. No, he, he, he's, he's, he's working to root out the causes of division in the church there. And so in particular, he's trying to deflate that pride that swelled in this congregation and that's behind so many of their conflicts and so much of the... The, the, the fraction of fractioning of this church. And so he's done this by in two ways primarily up to this point. He's done it by emphasizing, one, the message of the cross, and two, the work of the Holy Spirit. And so the, 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 in that first chapter and into the second, he's, he's saying no one, no one can boast in their status of being in Christ or in the church. And why is that so? Because the foolish of the message of the cross from the world's perspective and, and, the, and the reality that even as Christians, we, are, we didn't bring anything to the table. We were nothing. We were weak. We were, we were foolish. And the, and the futility of ever thinking that someone would embrace this gospel message apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, all of those things that Paul's been, he's been making that case, all of this should fill us with this humble gratitude to God where we say, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so he's been, he's been just... just poking needles in the pride of the Corinthian church, trying to deflate that because, again, it's behind so much of the, the division in the church. And so in chapter 3, he continues to, to deal with this, these pride-fueled divisions. And, and in these verses, that the imagery that comes to mind, it's like he's this skilled physician, the Apostle Paul is. And, he, and he's examining, like on the, on the exam table there, these Corinth, this Corinthian church. And so with, with that imagery in mind, I'm just kind of using that as we, we talk through this text. In, in verses 1 to 3, we're going to see his diagnosis. And his diagnosis, kind of borrowing an expression from pediatric medicine, I hope I'm using this right. Heather, you can just correct me. Just nod and smile and go along with me. But, but I would say the Corinthians, they suffered from what, what is, is called today like a failure to thrive. A failure to thrive. That's a, it's a medical expression. When a, when a child doesn't grow as he's supposed to, he's not those, you know, those percentages and, and those growth charts. He's well below, uh, well below the average, falling way behind in, in expected growth. That was the Corinthian church, failing to thrive. So that's the diagnosis. In verses 3 to 4, we're gonna, he's going to identify some of the symptoms of that. What, it, what does that look like in, in the context of a local church? of this, this dreadful spiritual failure to thrive. And then in verses 5 to 9, and then on into next week, and we're going to see more. He's going he's to begin to give that treatment plan and more of that treatment plan that, 
that we've already seen, and that's going to run through the end of the chapter. So, just, but just as we talk about this, he calls them infants in Christ. I know we're, we're kind of turning a corner in chapter 3, and he's really kind of, gloves are coming off here, it seems, in this part of the letter. But remember, he's, he's not making fun of them or, or, or belittling this, this church, these Christians. He has, these are his friends. He spent 18 months with them. He deeply loves this Corinthian church and these individual members of this church, they are brothers and sisters in Christ. That's how he addresses them in verse 1. In the opening verses of this letter, again, Paul made it quite clear that, that, he, that, that he lives in this constant state of thanksgiving to God for them. The last words he's going to say in this letter are an expression of his abiding, enduring love for this church. And, and there's going to be many other explicit uh, expressions of his love and care for him for them throughout this letter. I would say it's because of his deep love for them that he speaks so directly to them in this, because it's it is of grave concern and it's serious. And so, all right, let's. With that said, let's listen to Dr. Paul and let's let him kind of kind of work through this church. and And I think we will see some things about ourselves and about us as a church in it. So, first, the diagnosis. The diagnosis is simply this, is that spiritual people can live quite unspiritually. That, that, that's the reality. So it's verse 1. But I, brothers, I couldn't address you as spiritual people. We'll come back to that. You remember, if you are with us last week, you, you should be clued in. I couldn't address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Now, these are people, we talked about this, they, they prided themselves in their Exposed spirituality in their in their maturity, and and so this is this has got to be a kick in the gut to this church. And but but remember last week we saw that he he made this distinction. This is the dividing line through humanity. You know, they were trying to cause all these divisions through the church, and and the better, the worse, the spiritual, the unspiritual, and the mature, the immature. And, and Paul says, no, 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 no. There's one dividing line through humanity. There are those who are spiritual and those who are unspiritual. That is those who are Christians, those who are are unbelievers. They, those who, the spiritual ones are the ones who have the spirit of God. He made that case very clear last week. And so, so he's writing to, to Christians. He's writing to spiritual people, to those, to these are, these are brothers and sisters who are in Christ, he says here. And so they've grasped the message of Christ crucified because the Holy Spirit's worked within them. They, they are spiritual. So let's, let's see that. But here's the deal. They're not behaving. They're not living as if they're spiritual. Their, their lives aren't, are being lived in conformity to the gospel uh, message that they've received and, and embraced and, and, and believed. And so positionally, they are spiritual because they have the spirit of God in them. But practically, they're living as though they didn't have the spirit. That's what he's saying. They, the ways they're thinking and talking and behaving and, and their attitudes, they don't reflect well at all that positional reality that they are believers and the Spirit is in them. So Paul addresses them, not as spiritual people, he says, but what? As people of the flesh. Verse 3, you are still of the flesh. Now he is, he, is, he is penetrating the defenses of this church here with, this, with these expressions. So he's, he's, he's really waking them up to the dangers of of their pride, their boasting, their divisiveness by using these words. And so he says there, he, he's, he's addressing them as people of the flesh. That of the flesh, uh, in the, if you're using a King James version or something like that, some of you may be, 
That's where we get the word carnal. And so if you hear the expression, the carnal Christian, this is where that's coming from. The NIV uses the, translates this as worldly. But but, but it literally means fleshly, of the flesh. That's that's good. And so uh, I I realize there's there's a lot, and we can't, I was talking with this Howard Howard about this before. We, We can't stall out here, but there, there are discussions about carnal Christians and whether that's something that's real or not. There are people who reject the category of, of, of carnal Christianity, uh, or at least they're accused of doing so, but you really can't. I mean, we have to acknowledge this is exactly what, this comes right out of scripture here. He's saying you are, you, you Corinthian believers, you are of the flesh, you are, you are carnal, you are fleshly. Now, that's, I don't think carnal is probably the best word to use today. Uh, be, I, you know, we, we think carnal, the way it's most often used, it's, it's, um, it's kind of, it, uh, it tends to be associated with, the, like, sexual sin. That's primarily how we think of that word, carnal desires, those kinds of things. But, but the word is much broader than that, and that's, while that was certainly the case in the Corinthian church, that's not what he has in view here. So, that, so we, can't, we cannot deny that this is a reality, that you can be a Christian and be carnal, be fleshly. But the other end of the spectrum, there are those, from those who deny kind of the reality of carnal, fleshly Christians, some can, can create this entirely separate and real formal category of Christian. And so it's like if we could divide, we could divide this whole room. You put a bunch of Christians in a room and you have, you could divide the room into those who are carnal and those who are spiritual. And, and there's a sharp distinction between one or the other. You're, you're, it's binary. You're A or you're B. You're carnal or you're spiritual. And so generally the carnal Christian is the one who's who maybe was said to be genuinely converted, but they have made little to no progress in sanctification, possibly for years and years. And so the spiritual Christian, though, on the other hand, is, is growing, is bearing fruit, or, or most often, it, they're at least not, they're coming to church, they're, they're not sinning in some grievous way, and so we say they're kind of the spiritual Christian. So, so which one are you? That's kind, of the, that's kind of the thought. But I don't think that's what Paul's, that's what he's, not what he's saying here. That's not the way he's using this here, drawing some sharp distinction between, you know, this type of believer or this type of believer, which category you're in. Because what? But what he is saying, I would say, true believers, we can be fleshly. We can be carnal, meaning we can yield to that old sin nature. And instead of living spiritually, yielding to the indwelling spirit who resides in us, but we can, we can behave spiritually one moment and behave very fleshly soon after, and vice versa. Or in certain areas of life, we can be... We can be Yielding to the Spirit. In other areas of life, we can be very carnal, very fleshly. Some may be fleshly for, in certain areas of their life for, much, for very long periods of time and, 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 and longer than other people. And so we get into trouble, I guess, let's just avoid the two digits. We get in trouble if we deny that Christians can be fleshly, can sin in grievous ways for extended periods of time, like, like the Corinthians here. And we get into trouble, though, if we put people into a fixed category or another, and, and particularly when we start elevating ourselves and saying, we're, we're not that. And so seeing, seeing the text, let's see it in its context, and that's, that's the plain meaning. It's very clear, though. The, these were true believers, but they're failing to thrive as believers. They're, and that's a real problem. And it's one that can't be allowed to go unchallenged and and they can't persist in that condition. It's not, it's not good. 
So we need to be careful, lest the, the Corinthian failure to thrive be ours in the sense that we can, we can misuse this and start kind of, kind of dividing the church un- unnecessarily, which is not what Paul's saying here. We are, we are all great sinners, brothers and sisters. We, we continue to sin all the time. Just think of your thought life in the past 24 hours. And if you have any measure of self-awareness, it is a humbling thing to think, yet the Lord loves me and is gracious toward me in Christ. By God's grace, through the Spirit's transforming work, there are certain sins that, that maybe used to dominate our lives or certain expressions of those sins. And by His grace, those have diminished over the years. But we, we aren't... We aren't crushing it as Christians, are we? We, we struggle. We are sinners. We, 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 tend, to see, we tend to see sin uh, from a purely human perspective. And so, so the differences between this sinner and this sinner I'm talking about in the church, we, they seem great. And so we see one sinner's like, man, this, this, one, this person's like Mount Everest. Man, they are, they are thriving and they are growing. They are spiritual, man. And this guy, though, he, this is like the, the Mariana Trench, the lowest of the low. They are, they are wretched. And, um, and that just seems, the gap seems enormous to us. But what, what, what Scripture does, it's, it gives us God's perspective. And it says, it's like viewing the difference between Mount Everest and the Mariana Trench, the deepest part of the, of the ocean. It's like viewing it from Mars. And it's inconsequential. It's not that great. And so this should be a humbling thing for us. And All right, so with that said, the, back, to the, back to the main road here. Paul says, I'm addressing you as not as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you were not ready. So they're in Christ, they are, but they are babies still in Christ. Infants, they, they're part of the family, but they have a lot of growing up to do. There's a, there's a major failure to thrive. They're still eating baby food at the little table. This is Uncle Steve. And so when Paul talks about milk and solid food here, I don't, don't misunderstand what he's saying here. He's, he's not saying what you need to do now is to move on to bigger and better doctrines. That's not it. He, he, it's not Paul saying either the gospel... Jesus died, he loves you, he died for you, he rose from the dead. That's the simple food, that's the milk, all right, that's baby stuff. You know, that's how you, that's how you get in the door of Christianity. But then you need to go on to bigger and better things. That's not it at all. John Calvin says about this, the same Christ is milk for babies and solid food for adults. It's the same gospel. He, he's not saying there's some deeper truth out there that, that, that's been withheld until you reach some level of maturity, of, of spirituality, and then you can receive these, these deeper truths of God. That's not it. What he laments is, is that they're, they're not absorbing that message more deeply. They're, they're taking it in as, as babies. They aren't knowing more and more about Christ. They aren't going deeper and deeper into that same message of Christ crucified. And in particular, they haven't, I think this is his real point, they haven't matured to the point of, uh, uh, that they understand that the gospel message fuels humility. And, and, it, and it forbids boasting and it puts an end to jealousy and strife. This is evidence that they're acting like infants still. This is, a, this is a hard diagnosis, isn't it? 
I mean, this is this failure to thrive. Uncle Steve flinging mashed potatoes at other kids at the table. And the Corinthian church, they should have made progress in the gospel by now, but they're, they're still infantile. That's his diagnosis. They, they, they needed to start living like the spiritual people that they already are. That's what he's saying. Now, again, if you have any sense of self-awareness, you... I'm sure this diagnosis, it, it, it does hit close to the heart. We, 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 we can say, I should be farther along. I should be, I should be at the big table. I, I, I. But, what, but the one thing I want you to think about this is, is he's not singling out individuals. He, I know we, we tend to think like this. We, as, as kind of on our Western individualistic eyes, we read passages like this and we think, okay, what... What, is there something I need to see about myself in this passage? But Paul, what is he doing? He's addressing the church. He's addressing this congregation collectively. It's made up of individual members, yes, but he's addressing them as one body. The us matters more than the, than the I when we think about this. And, and notice I said us. We tend to think about the church, as particularly we're talking about the, the negative parts of the church and the ways we need to grow and change. We we talk about them. We speak in the third person. Baraka does, doesn't do this or does this too much. Or we, 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 we remove ourselves when we speak in, in those ways. I don't hear that often. I'm not, it's not a scold. But I'm just saying we, we, t- we all do that in whatever realm of life, and, and whether it's church or outside of that. But, 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 but it should be, Lord, we, we have these faults. We, we're still fleshly in so many ways. We, 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 should, we should not need to be addressed as, as unspiritual people, as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Lord, help us, help us. We'll get to, okay, what are, what's the treatment then to this condition? But let, for a second, let's move on to the symptoms. So if this is the diagnosis, this is, you go to the doctor and he checks you over and he's not saying much and he says, well, here's, here's the problem, here's the diagnosis. And you say, well, how did you see that? What are you, where did you see this, and why, are you, why, why is this a diagnosis? And then he starts to list off the symptoms. That's what Paul's doing here. And the symptoms are this, is that fleshly living, it often shows up in the form of jealousy and competitive strife within the church. And this is, again, fits right in the context of what he's been dealing with in this letter. We, here are some of the symptoms of a, of a failure to thrive. This is, this is what it looks like when there's stunted growth in a local church, some of the ways it might look. Verse 3, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Paulus, Apollos, are you not being merely human? So how did this stunted growth show up in the church at Corinth? One, you have, you have this jealousy, this jealousy that's growing like kudzu in this congregation. This is little table behavior, jealousy. This is kids' table stuff. One kid, this is, I've seen this scenario play out. This isn't hypothetical. One kid gets an extra roll. You know, their parent caves and gives the kid an extra roll. What happens, man, at that kid's table? Man, every kid is going ballistic. I want an extra roll. I want another roll. They may not even like rolls. I mean, but, but you, you throw something like that. You give a kid, you know, a hunk of liver, and everybody else is going to be screaming because they don't have a hunk of liver, and it, even though it's disgusting. And so... So this is, this is jealousy, but this is, this is little table stuff. This is, this is infantile. This is how it shows up, though. What does jealousy look like in a church? There's all kinds of expressions. But it's basically, it's instead of rejoicing, rejoicing 
for, with one another, when, when God blesses someone in some way, there's this inner attitude that thinks, I need that. I deserve that more than they do. There's this, this jealousy that gnaws away, and we look, we look sideways at one another. In Corinth, they're fighting over spiritual gifts instead of celebrating the giftedness of God and all its various expressions among the members of the body. They were fighting over it. They were jealous of one another. They're jealous over wealth. They're jealous over the Lord's table. They're, they're taking one another to court because of jealousy. All of these things. And this jealousy, it, it, it brought strife in that church, and it always brings strife. It brings conflict, infighting. That's the idea. And, and, and much of this strife in this particular church, it's centered on, a, on, its, on their preferred leaders. They're fighting over which group they thought was, was best. Paul, the Paul party looked down on the Apollos party and vice versa. And so the whole church, they're eating up. This is a symptom of, of, of these are the symptoms of this, this uh, immaturity, this failure to thrive. They're squabbling. They're taking offense. They're holding grudges. They're, they're muttering as they pass one another in the hallway. They're, they're throwing dirty looks at each other. And, 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 and this is infantile. That's what he's saying. In, in, a sense, in the sense that it lacks a deeper understanding of the gospel, the transforming power of the message of Christ crucified. It's behaving, as Paul says here in verse 3, it's behaving in only a human way. It literally means to act according to man. It's, it's it natural man. It's just, just how, how we would expect fallen people to, to behave. And so to, to act as though Christ were not Lord, to act as though the Spirit had not indwelled them, this is what he's saying. You're just acting in a human way. It's, it's to let the kind of the dog-eat-dog rules of, of normal human culture dictate your behavior and attitudes towards one another, even in the church of Jesus Christ. You're, 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 you're acting in a merely human way, not as those who are dwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, as he laid out last week. So Paul's placing his finger on a, on a core truth that's at the very heart of the Christian life here. And he's teaching us, what we've, we've come to live under new management. We have been bought with a price, brothers and sisters. We, we, have been, we, we no longer belong to ourselves. We are no longer our own. We belong to the Lord Jesus. And we've been placed in union with Jesus by the Holy Spirit that God has given us. And that means we, we can no longer cling to our self-centered rights, which fuel so much of the jealousy and so much of the strife and division in our lives and in the church. Just say dads. I know last week was Father's Day, but let me give you another, another uh, application your way. Just think about the last time you lost your temper with your kids. I don't ever do that, but uh, I know some of you probably do, so I'm just, this, is just, this is for you. No, I'm grateful Brooke and Callie are not here this morning. They're watching on live stream, but they can't object to what I'm saying right now. I paid my other three kids to just stay silent during this part of the sermon. Uh, but, but just so you lose, your, you lose your temper, your wife calls you on it and says, Honey, you, you need to calm down, dear. You, you, you shouldn't be so angry about this. And, and you're, you're, you're just frazzled. You're like, I, you, you don't, but you don't understand what they did. You, you, you I have every right to be angry, angry. They annoy me like you wouldn't believe. They did this. They didn't do that. And we go on and on. What is that? What is that in me? That's this self-righteous to use a theological word, knucklehead kind of thinking. I'm justifying myself. 
I'm telling myself I have every right to lose my temper, to fly off the handle, to be angry. I'm, a, I'm the offended party after all. The problem is with them. They're the ones who have the problem. And I'm waving my arms and I'm red in the face. And I'm, uh, you know, they're the ones with the problem. What will Paul say? What does he, what does he say to this church that's, that's eaten up with that kind of mindset, that kind of attitude? That, that's how they're relating to one another. That's defining, the, the, that's it's fueling these conflicts. He, he would say to, that, to, to this dad or to us as part of a church, can you see yourself right now? You're still acting in a, in a merely human way. You're acting according to man. You're acting as if you belong to you. As if you were in charge, as if you have the right to set the terms by which everyone around you should treat you and how they should respond to you and relate to you and deal with you. And he says, that's baloney. You are in Christ now. You are under new management. You are his. You are not your own. He has loved you. He has, he has, he has bled and died for you. He has borne your guilt and your shame. And he has, he has reconciled you to God by, by the cross so that you've been adopted into the family of God, into the household of faith. You are his now and you are to live for him. This is what he's saying. So he's getting at the symptoms. The symptoms of this failure to thrive in the church. They're many, they're ugly, but what is the reality? We are often ignorant of them, aren't they? It's like bad breath. Everyone around us knows it, but we don't know it about ourselves. This is how this often, I don't think the church saw themselves in this light. But to whatever extent, jealousy and pride and strife, self-oriented thinking, self-oriented thinking and attitudes and living abound, those are symptoms that point to, a f- to fleshly living in the church. And we can, be, we can be theologically robust in certain areas and, and, and growing in certain areas, but be infantile, according to Dr. Paul here, if these symptoms are there. We can, we can be large in size. We can have a healthy budget. We can have, you know, wonderful giftedness and, and all kinds of slick programs, and we can be fleshly. That's the reality. All right, third, and we'll have to do this quickly. Is we, we see the beginnings, just the beginnings of the treatment plan with Dr. Paul here. And, and, and what he, what he, he's going to open this up more in the coming verses, and we'll see this next week. But first thing that he says is just remember, remember that God alone is the true hero of the church. And he's made this point. This is where we start. Let him who boasts boast in the Lord. And this is, he's just coming back to it again. It's, it's, it's God. That's where your eyes need to be. And so it's going to go beyond that, verse 9. But he, he changes the metaphor here in verse 5. So it's, it was infants who need milk, not uh, solid food. Now it's servants working in the field, sowing and, and watering. And, and, and the church is, is, the field is the church. And so look at verse 5 with me. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. One commentator, I think, helpfully says, he says, Paul depersonalizes and depedestalizes. That's a made-up word depersonalizes and depedestalizes himself and Apollos. So he depersonalizes them, and he doesn't ask, who then is Apollos? Who then is Paul? He says, what? What is Apollos? What is, what is Paul? What, what sort of thing are they? 
And then he de-pedestalizes them. He, he topples them from that pedestal that the Corinthians wanted so badly to put them up upon. And, and, he, and he brings them down. He says, no, they're, they're only servants. They're, they're just agricultural laborers. They're farmhands. That's it. And he presses the point. Since they're only servants, they're not the ones who really matter in your life. They, did, they didn't convert you. They didn't change you. They didn't bring you to the faith. They're not the ones who are causing you to grow. They're simply servants, verse 5, through whom you believe as the Lord assigned to each. And so they're just instruments in the hands of another. That's what he's saying. The Lord assigned them to each. It's God's work. Some to Apollo, some to Paul, some to others. But it, 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 it's God who made use of those people and others to bring them to Jesus, to grow them up in him. And so the answer this is the treatment, the answer to the strife, to the division, to the, to the jealousy, to the, that's tearing this church apart is Paul is directing them away from mere human leaders. He's directing their gaze again, again, and again to God. That's what he's doing. Paul, Paulus, they're of no account. Only God matters. God is the true hero and champion of the Corinthian church. God is the true hero and champion of this local church, brothers and sisters. Our, our gaze has got to be on him. And Paul and Apollos, they had become kind of these heroes of the Corinthian church. And that fit with that culture. They, they loved to elevate. They loved that hero worship, just like our own culture does. And it led to all kinds of factions and problems in that church, as it does today. And so, so he's, he, he, you see this emphasis in the text, this strong emphasis on God's ultimate activity. His name is mentioned over and over because why? That's where our attention needs to rest as a church. It's not on men, not on preachers, but on the Lord whose servants they are. So he says again in verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only, only God who gives the growth. Not mostly, only God who gives the growth. For Paul, God is all that matters. All others are regarded as nothing. And we talk about, we may even talk about Christian leaders. Man, he's really something. And this is how the Corinthians say, this is how they spoke of their revered and esteemed leaders. Paul would say, no, all you need to say, God is really something. He is really something. That's, that's it. That's a wonderful and humbling reality, isn't it? Because God's work, it continues on with or without us. He is the one that's doing the work. But it's also a great encouragement. In his grace, he, he chooses to, he does use us to further his work. And so on the one hand, we aren't the ones who make it all happen. But on the other hand, God has given us this enormous privilege of taking part in the work of the master farmer, the one who's, who's doing it ultimately. There's Cuts both ways. So the question, where do we, where do we look? Where, where's the treatment for this failure to thrive? It shows up in this jealousy and strife. Where do we look for grace, brothers and sisters, together when we fail, fail to thrive as a church? And by God's grace, we come to see that our church or our individual life in some ways has been stunted, has been in, immature in certain areas for too long. Where do we turn? Paul says in verse Six, God gave the growth, past tense. In verse 7, he says, God still gives the growth, present tense, verse 7. So we look, we look to the Lord, not to our favorite preachers, teachers, church fathers, bloggers. We look to the Lord. 
Verse 8, he who plants, he who waters, they're one. Each will receive according his wages according to his labor. So two, two, two workers, different jobs, they're one. Paul and Apollos are one. They're fellow workers with God, belonging to God. In, in the Corinthian mind, they're, they're far from one. They loved, to, they loved to judge leaders differently. Some were better than others, and they liked to rank them. That was clearly what was going on. Constantly they're judging leaders. We, we do the same thing. But Paul says of himself, of Apollos, he says we're, we're both nothings, ultimately. And we're both one. We're working for the same thing. There's only one differentiation between the person who plants, the person who waters, and so on. And that, but that's entirely in the hands of God. He says, each will receive his wages according to his labor. In other words, there's, there, there is a difference between Paul and Apollos, but it's not one we can be aware of. It's, it's in the hands of God. It, it, it's, and it's, it's only in respect of how God views this work. And so he's looking forward to, to judgment day when God will reward his laborers. But, and we'll talk more about that next week because he's going to expand on that. But the last thing I want you to just notice that triple repetition of God at the end. That's because this is where the focus is to be placed. We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. God's building. And that's the metaphor that he's going to open up in the next verses. We're on the same team. We're working together in God's field as his fellow laborers, but only he gives the growth. Do you, do you hear that? Does that penetrate us, brothers and sisters? God gives the growth numerically, corporately, spiritually, in our life together, individually, as Christians. No pastor, no plan, no program. Growth is God's business and it only comes from him and when we forget that here's what tends to happen this is what happening in the corinthian church we tend to look to leaders instead of the lord for our growth and so when that when that's the case what do we do we either we either either idolize certain leaders because they have the answer or we demonize them and we blame all the problems on them and so we we and we usually we do both at the same time and what begins to happen is the the church begins to fracture along lines like that. And divisions begin to form and strife and jealousy begin to percolate to the surface and, and, and acting in a merely human way, according to man, as Paul says, our growth is stunted and we fail to thrive. You recognize that pattern in your life. You recognize that in the church. Are we, are we looking to people for what only God in Christ can give us through his spirit? Is there, is there strife and jealousy in our hearts? We, we need to come back to Jesus for the growth that only he can give and that we desperately need. And so church, let's, let's eat at the big table together. Let's, let's do it. Let's, that, that doesn't happen. I know this is what happens at the kid's table. You know, you got the little two-year-old that's got, you know, mac and cheese all over his hair and he's like, I deserve to be at the big table and, and we, you know, pounding and, and making himself sound big and lifting himself up. That's not what I'm talking about. Let's inflate our understanding of who we are. No, the, the, what gets us to the big table is to humbly understand that the church is God's. It's his project. And we, are, we ourselves are fellow workers under God belonging to him. Let's, let's live together with that mindset. Let's pray. Lord, would you help us to have the mind of Christ, as we said. We do have it. Help us to live out of that, Lord. Help us not to live 
as those without the Spirit, but to live as we truly are, people who have embraced the message of Christ crucified because of the work of your Spirit in us. We are spiritual people. Help us to, to live in, in light of that positional reality. Father, wherever there's a failure to thrive in our lives and in our church, Lord, I pray that the, the, the treatment that Paul sets before us will be what we turn to, and it's to look to you. It's not to look beside us and place blame and point fingers, and if we could just do this or if we could just get this person doing this, it's to look to you, Lord, for help. And so we look to you for the grace in the areas where we fail that we need, forgiveness, and we look to you for the transforming work of your spirit to do far more than we know to even ask or to think, Lord. Lord, we, we beg you for that help. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.